0: Father God, as we come before your word this morning, think of
1: those final words of this passage. Declare these things. Rebuke with all authority. Your word is a sharp two-edged sword. Let it pierce our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Up until this point, we've had two
0: sermons in the book of Titus and that we've heard together. And yes, we did hear them together. I, in that dreadful 70 degree weather in San Diego, did wake up at 7 a.m. to listen to the worship service here. It was hard. It was hard, mind you, but I still accomplished it. And by design this series thus far, really because the book of Titus is designed this way, has had a lot of emphasis on the gospel of grace found and situated in a person, Jesus Christ, but also Titus and the office of overseer and the office of elder. There's been a natural progression to the sermon series because it follows really the natural progression of the letter that Paul is writing, the apostle Paul is writing Titus in the face of A rebellious people, as he calls them in chapter 1, verse 10, out of his ministry base of Crete. Those Cretans, according to God's word, is a culture made up of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gottons. How do you like that for God's word's definition? This Cretan culture Titus was ministering to, hated, the very idea of faith in christ and then by extension hated christianity and so paul in this first half of titus as he's writing this young uh, pastor titus in Crete, he's giving him wisdom on how to navigate a cretan rebellious culture
1: and so as already stated he basically made clear Get Surround yourself
0: with godly elders, godly overseers, godly men who will help uh, you in the faith, help you minister. But it doesn't end there. There's actually this household, larger church family dynamic. That's only one piece of the puzzle, the office of, of elder or overseer. And we'll, we'll, we will see in this letter of Titus, Paul has this bigger picture mind from a household family of faith, an interlocked family that together is bound and held together through the power of the Holy Spirit
1: within the backdrop of this rebellious Cretan culture behind them. So today we're going to begin to look at the reality of the larger community
0: that that Paul is encouraging Titus to help build. And to begin, we must mention an obvious fact, and it is an obvious fact, about the backdrop of our own American culture at this moment and the state of sin in our country. This passage is going to frustrate the world. It's also going to frustrate some Christians. Actually, even the passage hints to that in chapter 2. Because the household of God in this age Continues to be a gendered reality, a two gender reality with no fluidity to them. Ten years ago, a pastor would never bother pointing that out at the pulpit. We don't say, yeah, we know. But the bases of power in our world, the bases of power in academia, the bases of power in politics, the bases of power on the internet and in Hollywood and the media, they have all aligned to create new words and newfangled ideas on gender. So I have to mention the obvious. Just this week, at a church my wife and I have been to several times when we used to visit family in Los Angeles, just had their sermon removed from YouTube because the pastor mentioned in his sermon the biblical reality of gender. This was the statement he made that got him removed and canceled from YouTube. And I quote, which means the rest of this sermon is now canceled from YouTube for its sacrilegious content. Anything goes on YouTube except biblical Christianity, of course. Pastor John MacArthur said, There is no such thing as transgender. You're either XX or XY. That's it. God-man made man, man, male and female. This is determined genetically. That is physiology, that is science, that is reality. This notion that you are something other than your biology is a cultural construct intended as an assault on God. The only way you can address it, honestly, is to say God made you, God made you exactly the way he wanted you to be. You're not only fighting God in His physical creation, you're fighting God in His sovereignty. You're fighting God in His spiritual relationship to you. That obvious, biblically grounded statement is now called hate speech by the basis of worldly power in our country, and it needs to be censored. You need to be protected from such speech. I never dreamed of the day where the gendered reality of human existence was considered to be a thought prime. Yet even within the course of the last three weeks, our brothers and sisters in Canada, with a recent bill that just
1: passed unanimously in their government, they could now go to jail for five years for saying what I just said at the pulpit. But the fact is, I and hopefully you, brothers and sisters in Christ, we
0: stand upon the words of the book. This is the firm foundation. This is the foundation that is true and tried. I don't have time for the silliness to pretend to play word games, and you shouldn't either. With what the new lingo the world has come up with, we are to care about this word, this testimony, this truth. By the way, if you don't like the differences, Paul's going to spill out about gender. Remember, your problem isn't with me. It's with the Word of God. I am also not saying there aren't times that gender realities don't get muddled within this church. I, for instance, the long-timers know what I'm talking about. This church had two beloved pastors— twice in its history, recent history, suddenly leave and lead a power vacuum in their leaving. They hadn't really prepared the congregation for it. They really hadn't set up the parameters
1: for it. And in that vacuum, honestly, if I'm being candid, women rightfully, in
0: one sense, filled the void in order to help this church continue and go forward. But still, there is a gendered reality, a gendered order to the church, and in an ideal set of circumstances, we want to be people of the word. We want to be people shaped by the word, always trying, just like the Sunday school lesson, semper reformata, always reforming ourselves to the word. And so we'll find Paul instructing Titus's, uh church, his community, this household of faith, He serves with several encouragements. But there's actually one word used five, four times overtly, and I think it implied a fifth time in the first 12 verses of this passage I want to focus
1: on. And it's the Greek word for self-controlled. Did you catch that? Self-controlled.
0: Really, the idea is prudent wisdom. That while people are succumbing to the rebellion of Cretan culture, people listening to God's word in this land of Crete or America, those people who listen to God's word, abide by God's word, will have a prudent, self-controlled wisdom in the chaos of life that will help them go dependably forward in the trouble. Now, I want to pause a little bit on this word, self-control which is used, again, in verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, verse 12, and I believe it's implied in verse 3, and point out an irony that is often missed in living a biblically faithful life. You know, people often think of Christianity as the great enslaver. That's why, you know, people still in this world today love to uphold people like Marx and Nietzsche and Camus and others Freud, because... You know, these people really dealt with the great enslavement of Christianity. They really had something to offer, something to give. And yet, that's really the world's general idea of a biblical Christian. I will lose that self control. I will lose that personal autonomy. In one sense, I will surrender that earthly raw wisdom if i surrender myself to this antiquated book of antiquity and here's the irony of that idea there is a personal liberty and personal freedom in christianity that can be never that can never be found in utter godless living there is a uniqueness to our lord
1: and his grace And the freedom it provides that can't be found anywhere else. Don't believe me? Just consider, how does the world try to solve its problems?
0: Answer it in your head. How does the world try to solve its problems? Usually it tries to solve its problems by more laws. This isn't working. This isn't working, but we need more laws. How often do we think, how how will we fix this Cretan culture of America? We often think, we need the politicians to fix it. On the other hand, here's Christianity. And it's front full of warnings for people who come to God with a strong sense of their personal righteousness in the law and a desire to reach God through their own working out of the law. Christianity, it's not that Christianity doesn't appreciate the law. Christianity flips the script of order and says, you really want to fix things? you really want to have a purposeful wisdom and self-control to your life? First, go to the hill of Calvary and realize what's being accomplished there on your behalf two thousand years ago. First go to Calvary and remove the heavy heavy burden of sin on the on your back that Sinai does help illuminate and make clear, but first go. Calvary and receive the grace it delivers. Then, then you can go to Sinai. Then you can see a life adorned in the wisdom of abiding by God's law. By the way, women, I know you're soon to be in the book of Galatians. My overly general summary of the book of Galatians as you prepare to study that book is Remember to love Calvary first before you go to Sinai, before you appreciate Sinai. It's a simple summary, but I think a good one. Whether we love or to love the law, even David, who is a breaker of the law, says, I meditate on it day and night. We love a law first established and founded upon the gracious liberty of Christ, the gracious covering of Christ, that he is the answer for the problem of death we read about in Genesis 3. We love the law because we have been adorned by grace, and we want to share that grace through Jesus Christ. It is then I desire self-control, and I'm willing for Jesus now to tell me the differences between gender and the roles between the household of faith, for both young and old, bondservant-free woman and man. The grace of Christ gives birth to the church family, and so let's look at that family. First, at the older man, men of the church family, in verse 2, they're asked to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Now, let me say this right off the bat. I think the ESV does a disservice to the point of Paul. The older being used here is really in the reality of being more mature in the faith. Now, And Karen's really going to love this illustration. I used to dry-age beef. Beef prices have gone way, way up. I don't dry-age beef anymore. It's too expensive of a hobby. But I used to dry-age beef. And after 45, 60 days, what were the steaks like? They were incredible. Because there's something that happens to the meat it, the tendons break down, the, the connections break down. That, that just You need time in order to, to really make a, a great dry-aged steak. Some of the best steaks of my life have been dry-aged. Uh, I mean, we as a family, you didn't even need a knife when I dry-aged steak. You just use a fork. It just broke apart. It was beautiful. But does that mean every steak in my life that has been good was dry-aged? No. Oh, no. I know. I know. Yeah, Robin and George, we're about to go eat steaks, right? I don't think they're dry each they're excellent. It's the best they have eaten in Pennsylvania. Are these steaks from this place? See George about it later if you're interested. But there it you don't need it. It doesn't always ring true. But there is a reality that often with the office of elder office with Christian maturity, it does take time. It does take seasons. It's not always the case, but it's a good principle. It it helps. It is helpful. That's sort of the idea here, the illustration here. When when the Bible is talking about age, it does mean in one sense older, but it really is a, a question of maturity. And sometimes we know that God has put great refining moments in people's lives at different seasons. Sometimes even children are made to have to Go through the refining fire of serious difficulties at a very young age but and so let's think of that when we think of elders a maturing age often helps but not required let's also look again at this list of qualities they ask they're asked to be sober minded dignified self-controlled, sound in faith in love and in steadfastness and we read something like that it's just a big word sandwich in your busy thinking i don't want kevin to break down every term and that's okay i'm not going to what we're going to do is look at the photo negative which maybe some younger people are going what's a photo negative but just follow along the inverse we're going to look at the inverse let's look at what the idea of a terrible elder would look like the inverse is this an elder cannot be someone who is grumpy fight picker who is cynical And tired of sacrificing for others. Let me repeat that list again. They cannot be someone rumpy, fight pickers, who are cynical and tired of sacrificing for others. You know, there's this awesome reality to the New Testament that I often do marvel at, and it's that this the fact that Paul and Peter and John and, and Luke, all of them could be made to to endure such great suffering, and yet there's this grounded joy to them and grounded love that they continue to go out to the audiences
1: that continue to persecute them and hate them. They, they don't tire of sacrificing for others.
0: They're the exact opposite of grumpy fight pickers who are cynical about the future and tired of sacrificing for one another. So a good elder candidate, a good individual to be re- noticed as a mature man of faith, is in one sense a little bit like those. And I need to get down and pulp the ilster. Those, remember those inflatable punching bags that would lean down and pop back up, lean down, pop back up. Uh, you could kick them, all sorts of things. I had a blast with those. I, I one of my favorite Christmas presents ever was my mom gave me a punching bag, and oh, it was so much fun.
1: And they as you mind is you kick them. You would try to attack them. They still will not be moved. They come back to the place
0: that they were at, which is on solid ground, on the true word of God, on the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. That's the quality of an elder. And now Paul which is gender, and first implies, um, as for the women older in the church, that likewise, in one sense, they are to share a lot of those same qualities. But Titus also wants to make clear there's still different emphasis when it comes to women. And, and verse 3, he added, the idea of a mature woman of the faith is that they are not slanderers. We should ask ourselves, what's slander? It's a word we use a lot, but what does it mean? For instance, what is the difference between gossip and slander? Gossip is ultimately more grounded in thoughtless talk about someone sharing information that really just isn't yours to share. We've all stumbled into that. Slander, however, the kind being talked about here, which women, but also men, but the focus is on women here, can be prone to fall into, are malicious statements being made in order to injure someone's reputation. There is an attacking nature to slander. There is an axe to grind in slander that is diabolical. And if you don't believe me, if you think I'm exaggerating, if you think that is too much to say slander is diabolical, all you actually need to know and appreciate is the Greek word here for slander. It is diabolos, the root word for diabolical in the English To maliciously attack attack people with false dramatics, false narratives is considered acting in a diabolical spirit. Also, attached to this warning, warning is that mature women are not women who slander. To that, attached to that point is the idea of drinking too much wine. And for some of you, maybe you're sitting here saying, Amen, any amount of wine is too much, and that's okay. I'm not here to change that opinion. Or if you take that position, that's a great position to hold. But there is a degree of wine drinking that is allowable in the Christian faith. But once the wine controls the drinker, rather than the drinker controls the wine, it's been too much. That's why it's a great principle. If you uh, do not want to drink wine, go ahead. That is a great principle. You never have to fall into that trap. And yet, why does God desire this? Is this just God being bossy, God with laws again? No. notice what it says. He actually has an encouraging component linked into this desire. It's so that these mature women might be able to teach the less mature women, or as the SV puts it, the younger women of the faith. The Spirit of God has a positive motivation in, in these acknowledgements. Now, let me point off a few things right off the bat in these verses on women. There is an orderly headship to the church. Titus and the elders help teach the mature women of the faith. Then the mature women of the faith help teach the newer women of the faith. Two things are implied in this biblical structure. And the words I choose here are important, so listen closely. Can a church best function as a church without women to some degree, according to the Word of God,
1: contributing in the teaching apparatus of the church? Yes or no? What Titus is telling us in verse 3 and 4 is actually there needs to be a vessel
0: for mature women of the faith to be able to teach within the church. However, don't let modernism run run too far with that definition. It's a very specific category here. These mature women of faith are to come alongside younger women, less mature women in the faith, and help them. They have a specific gendered category that they are supposed to teach. They are supposed to concentrate and and serve a role that a male elder like myself uh, can't serve Th- there is no biblical category for the female pastor there is no ca- biblical category for a female overseer of an entire church but there is a biblical category and a needed place within a congregation for women of the faith to be teaching other women of the faith that's why I'm really excited about seeing the development of women's ministry within this congregation because I want to be a biblically faithful congregation. There are godly women, there are things godly women can enter into that no man can speak to in the same way because there are real differences to gender. We can't just willy nilly change our gender realities. And so, Well, maybe you were thinking, why do we need another ministry? Why do we need women's ministry? We need a women's ministry to be more biblical. That's my argument, I believe, the argument Paul's making to Titus here too. As someone who has served both in congregations that have tried to avoid uh, women's ministry, and by the way, I'm thinking of the church in Reno, not this one when I say that, an OPC church I was a part of. By the way, their gender roles in that church were unbiblical at times. I'm going to get probably in trouble for saying that, and also in a church with a very healthy women's ministry, which was the p c i came from, there is a reality to the church ministry that women can help complement
1: in ways that really give life to the church But what are these mature women supposed to encourage
0: in what are what are supposed to be some of their focuses i mean. And, and I think to be clear, it's shocking, especially for my wife, what the focus is supposed to be. I mean, you really lucked out, honey, when it came to this focus. But they are supposed to learn how to love their husbands and their children, which is why, you know, my wife started on third base, right? But all joking aside, do you notice and appreciate the fact that husbands are first? I have counseled a lot of modern American households that live as if you have to do everything first for the kids. But the reality is, if you love your kids, make your spouse a priority so that the children can learn from the example and have healthy households in uh, going forward. Even a popular idea in modern churches is, start with the kids and youth ministry and so goes the church. But the biblical idea in Titus chapter 2 is flipped. Start with the mature believers, both men and women, and so goes the church. Make sure the less mature, the younger believers have time to be around and to be counseled by
1: the mature believers. And so goes the church. The other thing mature women of the faith are to help with is to help women love their children. And that's an interesting one because that's uh, we think of a mother's love and culture, and it's practically sacrosanct. How do you have teach women how to love their children? We think it's inherent. We just we just give it to the public square.
0: But let me make two comments about what's being said here. First off, Christian love is not Willy Lily. I accept everything kind of love. It is directed, it is intentional love, motivated by the grace of Christ. Titus has already made that clear. But also let me be candid for a moment
1: here. Caitlin, Bridget, stand up, please. Stand up, please. I know most all of you know the reality of these two girls' births. Doctors
0: of the world's wisdom for both of them said the loving thing to do for them
1: was to abort them because the science of the prenatal exams was declared and settled. They were going to be medically fraught with problems, even if they survived until birth. You can sit down, girls. As we continue to live in a world that tells women, oh, you don't want to be married? Oh, you don't want to saddle yourself with that? Oh, the most important right in you to defend as a woman is your right to abort a baby, to baby, basically
0: commit a murderous act of cruelty upon a baby. Do we really want to fool ourselves into pretending that this isn't truer of humanity at our cruel than we want to admit without Christ? That frankly, it's hard to love one another, even for women to love her children without Christ, without a solid understanding of Christ and submitting to Him for Himself for our sake and His submission for us and gracious love. How are women going to want to lay down their lives and love for both a husband, who is often hard to love, and children who require so much sacrifice? And the reality is, as we see in culture spread out throughout our society, in mass, they are not. I, I just heard, I think it's 14 out
1: 18% of households in America now that children are being born into have both biological parents in them. The fact of the matter is real, rap. Yeah awesome,
0: sustained, sacrificial love cannot be accounted for, the more society continues to reject Christ. You reject Christ and you become a Cretan. But also there's another side to this coin. Notice, if this is to less mature Christians that this is being told of, we need to be a community of grace. We need to understand that outside the sovereign Grace of Christ that when people do come through these doors, we will have made mistakes, terrible mistakes. Sometimes failures to love spouse, sometimes failures to love our children in profound and deeply impactful ways. And
1: we say, Come in, for Christ's burden is easy and his yoke is light. Let us have grace at the ready for those who made mistakes in their past when it comes to loving spouses
0: and children. Because remember, we cannot legislate ourselves to self-control like this. No, self-control, this kind, the kind that the Apostle Paul is talking about, desiring us to aspire to, is only accomplished through that beautiful, powerful grace that is a person, that is Jesus Christ. Because whether we're talking about elders or mature women of the faith, or young men and young women, or even bond servants are free, what will give us self-control, what will give us a unique wisdom in the public square? What it is, is an absolute submission and surrender to the grace of God and His Word. We need to be adorned, as verse 10 puts it, in His doctrines and teachings of our Savior, and a life adorned with Christ remembers both grace and truth, a life adorned with Christ, sees the beauty of grace and and desires to understand it more deeply and richly every day. It is our daily bread, and as verse eleven makes clear, grace is a person, grace is our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is first coming and who, in his first coming, brought salvation to all people, or a better translation all kinds of people, all different socioeconomic groups, all different strata of the social ladder. And yet verses 11 through 14 is actually one large run-on sentence in the Greek. It's one large sentence. And we see in verse 12 how part of Christ's coming was tied up into freeing us to live self control lives. This is part of why he came at Christmas to give us a unique freedom, self-control from the chains of sin. There's that word again, self controlled And how do we live that life? By restraining ungodliness, by restraining worldly passions. But you can't understand the desire for restraint unless you've seen the grace that appeared in the person of Christ. Then, then, only then, we are able to live in rebellious places like Crete and modern America. Waiting, as verse 13 says, for a blessed hope we waited. And that word blessed there is in one sense saying a happy hope. I just had to laugh because if we're waiting for a blessed happy hope, that also implies the inverse or the photo negatives. We won't always be happy in the Christian life. Actually, in this run-on sentence of verses 11 through 14, there are a ton of textual clues that suggest that Christian life will be incredibly hard. For instance, this sentence speaks to the idea of God being a trainer here. Like the kind of trainer at a gym or a hard head coach or a physical therapy where they physically get more out of you than you ever thought capable of. I just was speaking with Joy and Judy this week, and they were talking about their physical trainer. No pain, no
1: gain, right? What's a reality to the Christian life? No pain, no gain. We have a trainer who expects more out of us and to struggle in life. In times, we're going to say, this is
0: too much for us. I'm sure the Clark family has had moments this week. This is too much for us. Even there's the idea of purifying in this run-on sentence. How do you purify something like gold or silver or iron? You refine it in the fire. You test it in order to see that it has strength, that it doesn't buckle in the critical hour, in the critical moment. And yet we have that inner person, that old man that we fight against, that
1: says, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to struggle. I don't want to have to endure. And yet... I thought about this a lot lately. There is a beauty to the Christian life that
0: not even the angels comprehend. I only have, at best, a couple more decades to struggle, a couple more decades to lament, a couple more decades to know what it is to sorrow and to to hurt and to have pain and struggle, and yet, and then one day He will take it all away, and then. And there is a beauty in that because eternity stands before me. And I think that sometimes we, we fail to forget the angels won't understand this. The angels do not understand a lament psalm like we do, those created in the image of God,
1: to know the difference between good and evil. There is a refinement that is, that is beautiful to it. And this actually leads to another thing I thought about this week. No, I know I'm going long. I already
0: warned you, Pat, i going long. But this week, my daughter and I were driving. We were actually dropping off the clothes to the ministry that we support. And as we were, the church supports through donations. And we drove by another church at that time, and they had one of those flags. You know the kind I'm talking about the culturally appropriated flags that take a Christian symbol and made it into something else. And there was all these new symbols
1: on this flag. There was a triangle. And Caitlin goes, Dad, what's the triangle about? And I go, I don't
0: know, Caitlin. It's probably about people who identify as squirrels and don't like cream in their coffee. It's probably to talk about that oppressed class. Plus. And that's, Because I'm sarcastic and snarky, and the first thing out
1: of my mouth is not usually the most appropriate. But I have actually thought about that moment throughout my week. I've continued to think about it. What's really at issue? The issue isn't that they let them people who are struggling in the world in. That's not the issue.
0: I wish we could have a packed house of people with the sin struggles we've been kind of talking about here in this sermon every week. I take it, no problem. The problem and the sin comes in when we refuse to listen to the trainer. We refuse to be purified by his word. And so, what the flag more appropriately, Caitlin, actually symbolizes is the fact that that church will not allow itself to be purified by the Word of God. It has forsaken the Word of God. And we see the consequences of the church doing that throughout our country and throughout our culture. They forsake the purifying power of Christianity to their shame. To their shame. They want Self-control, so they never know the liberty of self-control that Jesus provides. Because in the struggle of maintaining the faith, there is ample, life-changing grace to be found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the hallowed and sacred reality of being intimately connected to his story of grace, of love, of joy, of sorrow, of pain, of endurance, and yet also of the ultimate gain where to live is Christ and to die is gain. This trainer is purifying us so that we might, in our purity, one day look like him and live with him. And so because of who our trainer is, let the trainer's word do its work. Let our trainer, that is grace incarnate, our Lord Jesus, shape your life and mine. Let let him tell us how we ought to live. Define us on his terms rather than embracing the world's foolhardy definitions. Let us be a beautiful household of faith, living in a rebellious Cretan world that wants to censor us, that wants to cancel the word of his truth. Let us run to grace, loving the grace which first ran to us, awaiting his
1: return in this present age. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the refining fire that is this word. And we thank you that
0: you train us through the power of the Holy Spirit and you will never forsake us. The world will never undo us and overwhelm us. In every valley, Lord, there is a greater still water to yet c- to come. Debbie Clark, entered into that joyous pleasure this week, and we await that moment as well. But for now, we do not suffer in vain like the world. We rather have a joy that is everlasting
1: and glorious. We praise you for that peace. In Jesus Christ we found. Amen.